hostility that we do see towards uh, public law enforcement. So I think in this environment, facial recognition faces an uphill battle for public acceptance. In July 2019, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF, hosted a discussion featuring a former deputy police chief, representatives of Customs and Border Protection and the National Police Foundation, and an executive from NEC, a facial recognition tech firm that sells its technology to law enforcement, governments, and businesses around the world. The panel discussion was held in ITIF's offices on Washington, D.C.'s K Street. It's an iconic street synonymous with the country's most influential lobbying firms. ITIF calls itself a think tank. The topic at hand? The value of facial recognition in law enforcement. Here's Daniel Castro again. He's ITIF's vice president. Uh, but it's really important for us to have this conversation. It's important that the public understands the potential benefits of the technology um, so that law enforcement can have these tools and, and use them to do their jobs effectively and safely. As Portland protesters demand an end to police abuse against blacks and other people of color and demand reductions to police funding, as federal and state police have descended on Portland in the name of property protection and law and order, a vote later this summer on whether to prohibit the Portland Police Bureau and other entities from using facial recognition in the city takes on more heightened significance than ever. I'm reporter Kate Kay. On this episode of Band in PDX, we'll dive into facial recognition use by law enforcement, why they use it, how it's been used right next door to Portland in Washington County, Oregon, and why a group with strong ties to the makers of facial recognition wants law enforcement to use it here. This is Band in PDX. One in two American adults is in a law enforcement facial recognition network. That was a startling conclusion in 2016 of a year-long investigation by Georgetown Law's Center on Privacy and Technology. Their report, they dubbed it Perpetual Lineup, said that use of facial recognition by law enforcement affects over 117 million American adults. Much of it, said the researchers, is not guided by any meaningful regulations around use or abuse of this controversial technology. Jameson Spivak is policy associate at Georgetown Law. He focuses on facial recognition and artificial intelligence policy. So when the perpetual lineup came out in 2016, uh, the center did a nationwide study of um, law enforcement agencies at the state and local level. Um, and it found that about 54% of Americans were in a, a database accessible um, for face recognition, um, and that about a quarter of law enforcement agencies around the country uh, had access to face recognition. Uh, there has not been a comprehensive study done since 2016, since that report came out. Um, so the bottom line is we don't, we don't know for sure um, whether 
this is this has grown in use, whether it's decreased in use. However, the number of bans on facial recognition, especially bans on the use of the technology by law enforcement, has grown. They've been established in cities including San Francisco, Oakland, and most recently Boston. Maureen McGough is director of national programs for the National Police Foundation. She spoke at that ITIF event. So one of the things we're actually trying to do is get out in front in communities where a ban might be coming and have that type of conversation that I was talking about earlier. Um, We have a new initiative where it's called Building Digital Trust. And that's exactly what we're trying to do is have that frank discussion because we think some of these bans might be built on a fundamental misunderstanding of technological capabilities and their intended uses. Um, and, and it could actually be solved in a, in a very frank town hall model as opposed to a sort of reactive, unnecessarily restrictive legislation. Everyone on the four-person panel backed up her sentiments. The, the notion that we should just stop doing everything um, just strikes me as really kind of naive in the sense that the whole world is moving to a more digital economy, a more digital system, a more digital life. That's Michael Hardin. He's director of policy for U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The idea that you could sort of put the genie back in the bottle is not realistic. I think what's what would be a lot better and what I would appreciate a lot more from um, some of these groups that make a lot of noise is come to the table. I want to work with you to see how can we do this in the most privacy conscious way possible. Um, but the idea that you, you want to sort of lay across the railroad tracks, um, I just don't think that's really productive or um ITIF has helped push the anti-ban agenda. They even got an opinion piece published in January in the Oregonian, our state's biggest paper. In it, the group argued that a top benefit of facial recognition technology is public safety. The ITIF wrote that a ban on police bureau use would, quote, prevent law enforcement from using facial recognition technology to find missing persons, catch identity thieves, improve security in crowded venues and identify victims, witnesses, and perpetrators of crime. ITIF, they won't reveal where they get their funding from, but many of the group's board members are lobbyists. Some from the best-known makers of facial recognition, including Microsoft and Amazon. Oh, and speaking of Amazon, a little side note. Amazon has lobbied right here in Portland against the proposed ban. For more on Amazon's lobbying here, check out episode one of Banned in PDX, or you can read my report from May at 10.medium.com. So as a quick reminder, if you haven't listened to earlier episodes of Banned in PDX, Portland City Council commissioners will vote later this summer on two facial recognition ordinances. One ordinance would make Portland the first city anywhere to prohibit use of facial recognition in privately owned places accessible to the public. So think stores, banks, some schools, hotels, the lobby of an office building. The other would outlaw use of the technology by the city's government bureaus, including Portland Police Bureau. Okay, so on to the Portland Police Bureau. They say they don't use facial recognition, and right now, they don't want to use it. Portland Police Assistant Chief Ryan Lee read from prepared statements during a January facial recognition work session held by the city council. (laughs) 
Lee laid out limited ways the police bureau might want to employ it in the future and how the bureau would approach policy for facial recognition if they were to use it. Again, the police bureau is not seeking this technology currently, but rather I am discussing the path forward if we were to acquire this technology. If the police bureau were to use facial uh, recognition technology, we would develop an oversight body and seek public input prior to any program implementation. Even if approved by an oversight body and council, the bureau only recommends using facial recognition technology in a limited fashion with highly vetted facial recognition algorithms. We will limit the use to post hoc investigations of violent crimes. In other words, the violent crimes such as homicides, assaults, and robberies or sexual assaults that already occur and there exists lawfully obtained imagery from a venue the unidentified person would have no reasonable expectation of privacy. The police bureau would not use live monitoring or what has been referred to as surveillance monitoring. Again, only lawfully obtained images pursuant to a crime. As this presentation is designed to discuss a possible future program, I want to reiterate we're not currently seeking to establish one. This potential policy restrictions are meant to be a high-level overview only. The use of facial recognition and other biometric tracking and identification technologies by law enforcement in this country goes back decades. It turns out 9-11 was a watershed moment. Michael Hardin, the one from Customs and Border Protection who spoke at the ITIF event, He described its history at the Department of Homeland Security and CPB. They're a component of that sprawling agency which was created in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. We have like so many things that are involved with DHS and CBP. A lot of the things we do with biometrics stemmed from the 9-11 attacks. So after the 9-11 attacks occurred and the report came out a few years later, what was revealed was that many of the hijackers had come in and out of the United States in various identities, violating their status in multiple ways uh, and through um, a variety of of document forging methods. Uh, And that revealed the need to to bring biometrics into an immigration and border crossing and transportation kind of construct. And that at the time was very new. Until that time, really, biometrics were uh, limited to fingerprints, uh, maybe some face recognition, but it was also limited to a very strict law enforcement police type of work. Uh, and so uh, bringing it into our world was, um, was very different and very new to a lot of people. But what we've um, uh, seen with face recognition coming up is that we are really just trying to, in a more secure way and in a more facilitative way, answer the question is of, are you who you say you are? So we're doing a, something a little different than looking for people that we think may have committed a crime. We're dealing with people that are asserting an identity and seeking uh, access to another place, whether it's an airplane, whether it's uh, entrance to the United States through the TSA checkpoint. Um, And so those types of use cases are a little different where someone is um, proactively saying, this is who I am, and the technology is used to back that up. Hardin and other supporters of facial recognition use argue it works faster and is more accurate than humans. But there are lots of detractors of facial recognition, and many, including the drafters of Portland's ban ordinances, emphasize the potential for the technology to lead to harmful impacts on minority populations. Recent research from a federal agency provides objective, scientifically rigorous evidence to back up those concerns. A study published in December by NIST the National Institute of Standards and Technology, found that 
Facial recognition algorithms are less accurate for particular demographic groups. After evaluating algorithms from 99 facial recognition developers, NIST found higher rates of false positives for Asian and African-American faces compared to faces of Caucasians. They used tests that determined likelihood of a match of one face image to another. That's the sort of process that might be used to unlock your phone or at the airport to verify identity. The levels of incorrect matches were significant. They often ranged from a factor of 10 to 100 times, depending on the individual algorithm, researchers said. There were also noteworthy inaccuracies in another type of test involving use of facial recognition to find a match for one face image within a database of many images. That's the sort of technique police would use to narrow down a list of crime suspect candidates. In that evaluation, it used an FBI database containing 1.6 million domestic mugshots. NIST found higher rates of false positives for African-American females. That means more Black women could end up in a suspect list based on an inaccurate match. That matters, and the research agency itself said it. They stated, quote, Differentials in false positives, in one-to-many matching, are particularly important because the consequences could include false accusations. The research got a good deal of media exposure, in part because it reaffirmed what other researchers had found in previous studies— that facial recognition algorithms have a racial and gender bias problem. So the way a lot of people see it is if you're the one detained by border control or incorrectly accused of a crime, the fact that an algorithm is 99% accurate just doesn't matter. During that city council session about facial recognition, Portland City Council Commissioner Chloe Udaly emphasized the real impact that false positive results from a facial recognition system might have on the lives of already vulnerable people. You know, it may not sound like a big deal to a lot of people to be mistakenly identified. There's still a process that happens afterwards, but we know that that mistake can be much more dangerous for some people than for others. And I'm really concerned that we would be creating an even more hostile environment for uh, people in our community who are already experiencing disparate impacts from multiple angles. So that NIST study has been influential since it came out late last year. The thing is, one of the most scrutinized suppliers of facial recognition to law enforcement didn't offer up its algorithms for evaluation. Amazon. The whole NIST evaluation thing, even though NIST is a government agency, it's voluntary. And Amazon's recognition software, they spell it recognition with a K, it wasn't part of the study. That matters even on a local level here in Portland. But first, here's a reminder. You're listening to Band in PDX, the only podcast dedicated to tracking Portland's historic ban on facial recognition. Find us at xraypod.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Bandon PDX is reported and created entirely by yours truly, Kate Kay. I'm doing this work on a strictly volunteer basis, and I'd love it if you'd share it with people you think would care about it. Back to the episode. So like I was saying, Amazon not being in that NIST study, it matters right here in Portland, not only because Amazon's top lobbyist sits on the board of ITF, which opposes Portland's facial recognition ban, and not only because Amazon spent thousands of dollars to lobby Portland City Council staff in opposition to the proposed ban, Amazon's reluctance to subject its facial recognition system to NIST evaluation has even more local relevance because Amazon's recognition system had been used right next door to Portland by the Sheriff's Office of Washington County in Oregon. I spoke in June with Danny DiPietro, the communications sergeant at the Sheriff's Office. Please ignore the whisper of typing in the background. This interview was not originally intended for audio. But I think it's important for you to hear DiPietro speak. There are valuable uses. you got to remember it's just a tool for us in the sense that um, it helps our investigators complete their investigations. And there's a lot of different avenues that we use to identify people. A lot of the times we already have somebody identified. So this is a very specific tool in trying to identify individuals where we have a picture of them such as surveillance photos. Well, a lot of our surveillance photos that we get are grainy and they're not good enough to put through the actual software. So you have to have kind of the right circumstance uh, in order to use this. DiPietro told me Amazon's system was first tested by the agency in June 2016, then made available to all deputies a year later in June 2017. He said they used the system to search for matches to identify crime suspects an average of 130 times a month. And he said there were multiple times the Amazon system helped investigators. He couldn't share detail because some were still open investigations, but he said it helped identify thieves, burglars, and attempted rapists. Police could even access the system remotely via computers in their vehicles. On the road, they might run a photo through the system or use it to identify someone incapacitated in a car accident. Here's DiPietro again. This is not by any means the be-all, catch-all, saving grace for law enforcement at all. We don't, we don't put this out in the media or to the out in public and just use it by, you know, just taking pictures of crowds. That's not within our policy. Valuable or not, the Washington County Sheriff's Office stopped using Amazon recognition abruptly in June. Essentially, they were forced to when Amazon announced it would place a one-year moratorium on police use of its recognition software. It's not clear just how much money Amazon put on the line when it committed to its one-year moratorium, but if Washington County is any indication, not much. In conversations about facial recognition use by police, the subject of price does come up. The technology historically has been expensive, cost prohibitive even. But Amazon made it available to Washington County for a pittance. In fact, DiPietro told me, despite using recognition software for four years, the sheriff's office paid Amazon less than $2,000 in total. That was from the beginning of the testing phase in 2016 till the time they shut it down in June. 
So what was in it for Amazon? Well, like many businesses hoping to gain a foothold in a particular market, the company may have hoped the sheriff's office could help promote its product to other law enforcement agencies. A hint lies in emails included in a public records request made by ACLU of Oregon. Names were redacted, but in an exchange in 2017, an Amazon representative and someone in the Washington County Sheriff's Office discuss possible plans for the Sheriff's Office employee to appear at an Amazon government summit. Quote, I am working on the customer reference, writes the Sheriff's Office representative, who notes in the same email thread, quote, a blog would be a great idea. I have never written for the software space before, so that will be a welcome challenge. Like DiPietro said, facial recognition technology is usually considered one of many tools employed to whittle down a list of candidates suspected of a crime or help identify someone already suspected. The thought of a facial recognition system being used as the sole basis of an arrest Many in law enforcement say it's just not realistic. But it's happened. Just last month, the story of Robert Julian Borchak Williams emerged. A black man from Michigan, Williams was wrongly accused of stealing five watches worth around $4,000 from a Shinola store. Shinola is a trendy designer brand. They make pricey accessories like leather bags and wallets. It turned out, when searching for potential matches to a still image gathered from store video surveillance footage, the facial recognition system used by the Michigan State Police surfaced Williams's driver's license photo among possible matches. New York Times reporter Kashmir Hill wrote, that investigators did not dig further to gather additional evidence before including Williams's picture in a small selection of suspect photos. Those suspects were shown to the store's loss prevention contractor, which led to the arrest of Williams. And this little wrinkle in the story will be especially appalling to baseball fans. The surveillance image showed the alleged thief wearing a red St. Louis Cardinals ball cap. According to NPR reporter Bobby Allen, Williams said, quote, he would under no circumstances be wearing that hat. Williams, after all, is from Detroit Tigers country. The vote on a facial recognition ban in Portland comes at a time when anti-police sentiment in the city is palpable. In Portland over the past few months, marches and rallies against police abuse in memory of black people killed by law enforcement, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, including some killed by Portland police, has been in every night occurrence throughout the city since the end of March. Anti-police graffiti and flyers have been a common sight even miles away from the nucleus of the protests downtown. Consistent demands from protesters to defund the police here 
created enough momentum and pressure for the city council to reduce the police budget by $15 million in June. It brought it down to $229.3 million, leaving it at around $15 million more than the police budget stood just a few years prior in 2017. Many said the reduction just didn't go far enough. Meanwhile, during consecutive nights of demonstrations, Portland police officers met protesters, even the majority peaceful ones, with tear gas, batons, and so-called less lethal weapons like beanbags. These munitions have maimed people here and in other cities. Then a simmering cauldron erupted. In early July, the Trump administration sent federal agents to downtown Portland. Some were from U.S. Border Patrol and Customs and Border Protection. They were sent here to protect graffiti-riddled federal buildings, which, during the protests, have been vandalized. Videos have flooded the Internet, depicting nighttime clashes between thousands of protesters and a militarized federal police force in camo. Reports of protesters setting fires near the federal courthouse and launching projectiles and fireworks at police tussle with reports of civilians getting whisked away by federal agents in unmarked cars, along with nightly tear gas attacks on veterans, moms, and other peaceful protest groups. It's not known whether federal agents in Portland have employed facial recognition. Customs and Border Protection has employed the technology for years at airports and land crossings for identification purposes. Here's Jameson Spivak from Georgetown Law again. With the presence of federal law enforcement agents in Portland, we don't know what they're doing. We don't know what capabilities they have. If they're using face recognition on protesters, we just don't know. Spivak said it's also not clear whether any law enforcement agencies have been using facial recognition recently to keep an eye on Black Lives Matter protesters. Yeah, it, it's really tricky because because this process is so opaque, like we just really don't know if they're using face recognition. Well, we do know that police in certain cities have been asking people to send in photos and videos from protests, um, and we don't know what they're using those photos for, like they could just be using them as investigative tools, like without face recognition, but they could also be using face recognition on them. Um, so so it's, it's possible. But police have used facial recognition to monitor BLM protests in the past. The technology was used by law enforcement in Baltimore in 2015 to monitor protests after the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody. Basically, the Baltimore County Police used a social media monitoring tool that would pull images and posts from social media. And they sent these, these photos to Baltimore County Police, who ran them through face recognition, uh, identified people that had outstanding arrest warrants, and then targeted those people for arrest from the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is a First Amendment issue. This is a political speech and participation issue. Um, and, and it leads us to believe that it's... That police could be using it for that purpose now. Um, And, you know, 
what what they might say, what police might say is, look, we're just using it, we're just using it to target uh, rioters and looters and people causing property damage, um, which may be true, but <laughs> as as you know, the past couple months have been you know have indicated that just because they say they're using it for one purpose doesn't mean that they're not using it for another. Um, and and you know the line that they use to define what a, a rioter is versus a protester or what a looter is versus a protester is uh, it's questionable um, based on the way that police have have treated people who are peacefully protesting. By July 30th, Oregon Governor Kate Brown had brokered an agreement with the Trump administration. Federal officials would leave the city. Oregon state troopers would deploy outside the federal courthouse downtown in their place. An Oregon state police spokesperson told me the organization does not use facial recognition. And it's also worth noting in Oregon, use of facial recognition or other biometric matching technology to analyze police body cam footage is outlawed. So with police tactics already under immense scrutiny here, the moment could not be any more ripe or raw for a vote on legislation limiting the ability for law enforcement to employ potentially harmful biometric tools in the name of public safety or maintaining law and order. COVID-19 and disorder in the streets here in Portland has set back the date for the vote on the facial recognition ban. For now, it looks like city council commissioners will vote on the two ordinances in late August. This has been another installment of Banned in PDX, an evolving series about the proposed facial recognition ban here in Portland. The Banned in PDX podcast is reported, edited, and produced solely by yours truly, Kate Kay. A special thanks to Portland reporter Sergio Olmos for allowing the use of protest sound he's captured at nightly demonstrations here. Banned in PDX is an entirely volunteer effort. This is journalism intended to inform listeners on an important subject that otherwise is getting very little coverage anywhere else. If you like it, please share it on social media with other people who might want to know about this stuff. Subscribe. And if you're inclined, give it a good review. Until the next episode, check out more detail on Portland's ban legislation in my reporting in 1-0. That's 1-0, spelled out, dot medium dot com. And follow me on Twitter at Kate K Reports. In Portland, I'm Kate K. Until next time. This is Banned in PDX. Thank you.